to open our eyes, our minds, most especially uh, our very hearts, the very core of our beings, that we might receive this word. May it resonate deep within us. May you plant it in such a way that it would grow and bear fruits. Father, I pray that we might follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Second Chronicles in chapter 20. Second Chronicles in chapter 20. I want to read uh, verses 1 through 23. It's a long reading, but it's a story. You'll hear it and uh, need to stick with it, please. First, or Second Chronicles in chapter 20. In verse 1, uh, hear the word of God. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Menuhites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in uh, Hazazon, Tamar, that is, in Geti. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in the heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hands are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you'll hear and save And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them for a powerless against this great horde that is coming against us? We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehazel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them in the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jerul. You will not need to fight this in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they uh, went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, 
and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people who appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord sent an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Now, last Sunday, as we finished uh, reading through together and talking through together, the book of Acts. I said I wanted to preach one more sermon that was kind of a transition. Really, I had more going back than going forward. That is to say, there was one more thing on my mind that I wanted to lay out from the book of Acts. It's kind of hard for me to separate from these things after I've been in them in my lives for a year and a half or whatever it was for the book of Acts. But you might remember that we left Paul, the apostle, in Rome and, 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 it, and, and he was chained to a Roman soldier, but was unhindered other than that in declaring the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And there he was. And that seemed to us a rather quiet ending to a rather loud book, but it really it wasn't. It was amazing. Because if, if you could even imagine being in a, when a big bomb goes off, and everything settles, and you think everything's destroyed, what you see at the end of the day is Paul calmly continuing on, doing precisely what God had called him to do, which was teach about the kingdom of God, declare it, and to teach about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he continued to do that. So what's amazing to us is that after everything gets shaken down, you see this scene, and it's as if to say to us, Keep on doing this. No matter what happens around you, keep on doing this. No matter what you find yourself tethered to, keep on doing this. No matter where you find yourself, keep on doing this. Because you see, it's this mission that it's at the very heart of God. We hear it from the lips of Jesus when he says, All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Therefore, go. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach everyone to observe all that I've commanded you. He says, don't worry, I'll be with you, even to the end of the age. So you get this sense of, of this mission. Jesus lays out and he says, in your going, and as you go, and some of you just simply go, get sent, that I want you to be about moving people to identify with me, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want you to, to make followers of me, make disciples everywhere. I want you to teach people to observe everything that I've commanded. And don't worry, I'll be with you. Now, that's the significant part of that in one sense, of course, because Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. That is, that is there is nothing outside of his reach. In fact, as he was praying, Jesus, as Jesus was praying, to his father the night that he was betrayed, he said this. He said, since you have given him, that is himself, the Son of God, since you have given him authority of all, over all flesh to give eternal life to all you've given him. That little sentence, that little, that wasn't a whole sentence, that expression, Jesus said to his father, you've given me authority over all flesh so that 
I may give eternal life to all those you've given to me. None of them will be lost, in a sense, Jesus is saying, because I have authority over everything. So when, he, when Jesus said all authority has been given to him, now we're to go and he's going to be with us, the very authority of Jesus is with us to go and to gather all these for whom he died, all these the Father had given to him. So that's this mission Jesus tells his disciples in very practical terms what that means as, as we opened up the book of Acts. Because he says to them, wait in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he's going to empower you, Jesus said, so that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's, that's sort of the, the marching orders of the Great Commission. Jesus says, here's your new identity. Your identity is to testify of me. Now, the great thing, as we work our way through the book of Acts, is that nothing stops that. There's all kinds of obstacles that come in the way, but nothing stops it. There were, I won't rehearse all of this, because we did this so many times in Acts. I hope, I hope you get the gist of it. But, but, but we know there were, there were external obstacles. There were authorities in various religious and civil that came against the church and, and, and threatened and even beaten and even imprisoned and even killed. But none of that stopped the witness of these followers of Jesus. It continued on. Again, that's the great exciting part. Paul in Rome, the very ends of the earth, if you will, and from there to go even more. But there he is continuing to do what, what Jesus said that his witnesses would do, his people would do, witness, testify of him. And so that's continuing on. Nothing can stop it. None of those external obstacles, nothing internal to the church, the complaints of the widows, the lying of Ananias and Sapphira, the, the inertia of the church to get out and do it, none of that, the squabbles between Barnabas and Paul, none of that would stop the gospel from going on. That's the encouragement. That's why we read it. We read it so that we would see ourselves and, and sort of re-up as witnesses of Jesus. And not only that, that we'd see that nothing can stop us in a sense. All kinds of things will come against us, but really nothing will stop us because Jesus has all authority and he's the one who's with us. That being the very point of all of that. But I must confess uh, in my own life, and I see it in others as well, that sometimes these obstacles get huge in our lives. And we wonder, because we're, we're kind of in it, and it's hard to come out from under it, if you will, to see clearly what's actually going on. That's the blessing, one of them. One of the blessings of having the scripture. We get to see the big picture. We get to see it in history. We get to see it as, 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 as the Holy Spirit moved in the lives of these people to write it down for us so we can, we can get the big picture and see uh, through it all. But there are times when we're so much in it. We're so much in, for instance, the context of our own sinfulness that keeps us from speaking clearly the truth of Christ, that keeps us from living clearly the truth of Christ. I often wonder how confusing my life must be to unbelievers, what I profess and how I live. Is it confusing to them to watch me and hear me? I mean, I claim to be one forgiven. Question, do I live like that? I claim to be one who's received the mercy of God. The question is, do I, do I live like that? Do I show that? Do I forgive as I've been forgiven? Would people understand the forgiveness of Christ by watching my life? And I just, I just melt before that thought. Do they understand the mercy of God by watching my life? 
by realizing that I've received mercy and I'm merciful. Do, do they know that? When I, when I speak of the truth of Christ, do they, do they see my life as being reliable, as, 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 as the truth I profess? Is it, is it really true? Do they see it in me? And it's very difficult to see that anyone could really see that, that in me and in us. And yet that's the very call upon, the very call upon our lives. The scripture lays out clearly for us human nature, what it's like and what must be overcome in order for someone to come to faith in Christ, someone to hear this witness, someone to see this testimony of Jesus and, and believe. Uh, you know, we just run through what I call in my own mind the sin verses. That's how they're categorized in my mind. Genesis 6-5, the thoughts and inclinations of the hearts of human beings were evil continuously. That's the very nature of of our hearts, Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can trust it? John chapter three, Jesus says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And again, this isn't me condemning them. This is me saying this is us apart from Christ. And so, so this is all of of humanity. Jesus says in Romans in chapter eight that if you sinned, you're a slave to sin. I mean, you simply can't break free. From it, we read in Romans chapter eight that the mind of the natural man, that is the mind that's been unrenewed by the Holy Spirit, uh, is hostile towards God. There's this hostility towards God. I, I read as Lori came to be baptized, the very nature, as, as as Paul lays that out in Ephesians chapter two, that we're dead in trespasses and sins. I mean, it's just killed the very life from God that's, that's in us. It's, 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 we're dead in trespasses and sins. And we're under, naturally speaking, the very wrath of God. And we can go on and on. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks to the futility of the mind. Uh, in chapter 5, in Ephesians, Paul speaks of the fact that we're not only in darkness, but we're actually darkness. Once you were darkness, Paul writes. Says you, you couldn't see anything of, of, of God. No light at all. And so we understand that, that, that for us to be successful, if you will, in testifying of Christ and, and seeing people come to faith in Christ, that, that that has to be overcome. And in the midst of that, it, it's, we see our own weakness. How, how will that ever take place? We marvel at it in our own lives, but how will it take place even in the lives of others? We ask that question. And we know that we live in a culture where things really in America have changed. And it's hard to gauge at least for me, whether changes are for the, for, the, for, for the good or not. But we do know that, as Francis Schaeffer prophesied uh, a few decades ago, that we live in a post-Christian culture, meaning that, 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 that people have in our culture no Christian memory, meaning that, that people aren't growing up thinking about Christ or thinking about church. You know, there was a generation, the generation in which I was born, Everybody knew somebody who was a Christian. Everybody knew somebody who went to church. Everybody knew somewhat, somebody who, who, who had some relationship to Christ. And these things meant something so that in a person's life, if they began to, 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 to think about spiritual things, they thought of the church. That isn't true in our culture generally anymore. It's still true in various pockets. But those pockets are shrinking. Increasingly, people are growing up without any relation at all to anything Christian that would cause them, if we put out a sign, to show up at church. 
And so increasingly, this has always been true, but increasingly we find that we need to be incarnational. That is, that we need to be going into places with the gospel, even in our own communities. It isn't enough to just put up a sign and expect people to come. We need to be in there, infiltrating, bringing the very truth of the gospel to all of these pockets. And that can become overwhelming. But that's the call to us. Now, I must confess, in fact, Karen looked at the text that I was going to preach from, I hadn't said anything all week, knowing where, what I was thinking in terms of transition from the book of Acts, and she smiled and she said, I knew that's where you'd go. Because when I feel overwhelmed, I have, I have a friend in Jesus, but I also have a friend in Jehoshaphat. Ah, and I go there. I go there. One, one author uh, writes of Jehoshaphat like this. He says, The lasting impression that we're given of Jehoshaphat is not that he was a great man, though he was, not that he was a good man, though he was that also. It's here that we're shown the shepherd of God in his weakness. Now, it's amazing as I look upon this life of this king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, and I'm a bit short on time today because Jenna was just so darn cute. (laughs) And so illustrative of the gospel that I took more time than I wanted to or should have probably. But anyway, that's all for the good. But it's interesting to me as I think about this man, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. There was a time when he appeared strong that he was weak and a time when he appeared weak that he was strong. I don't have time to go back and read, but in your reading this week, read... Second Chronicles 17, 18, 19, and 20. That'll give you the whole picture. Because when we, when we find Jehoshaphat, for instance, in chapter 17 and verse 1, so Jehoshaphat, um, uh, his son, that is the son of Asa, reigned in his place and strengthened him, himself against Israel. You have to remember at this point that the kingdom was divided, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and Israel in one sense was an enemy. At that point, a good bit of, some of Israel anyway, controlled by Syria. Verse 2, he placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah in the cities of Ephraim and that Asa, his father, had captured. And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He didn't seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore, God, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. And so you get a sense of strength here. In fact, if you look in verse 10 of chapter 17, and the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the land that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. I mean, th- that in Old Testament uh, uh, times is, 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 is the great blessing of God, that peace. It, it sort of represents the peace that we have in Christ, but, but that military political peace. And there he was so strong in the, in the eyes of the other nations that they wouldn't even think to attack him. And when we read about Jehoshaphat, and he established things spiritually because he, and he, he sent the priests out to teach. Uh, militarily because the military was strong and so he fortified all the garrisons and all the cities and all of that and not only that but he brought justice to the land because he 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 made certain that the judges would judge justly and wouldn't take bribes and all of that and so we see righteousness reigning through through teaching through 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 power through 
um, justice. And, and there it was. However, chapter 18 comes along. And Jehoshaphat makes an alliance with Ahab, the king of Israel. And he makes an alliance, Jehoshaphat does, by giving his son in marriage to Ahab's daughter. Now, that was way more than just two kids getting married. There was a political alliance, and there was a bond that was established. So Jehoshaphat goes and he visits Ahab, the king of Israel, and the king of Israel says, I want to go do battle with this common enemy of ours. And Jehoshaphat says, well, let's seek the Lord. So Ahab brings forth all the prophets of God, and they, they prophesy, you'll be victorious, you'll be victorious, you'll be victorious. But Jehoshaphat, being a true follower of God, says, are there any prophets who might think differently? And Ahab says, yeah, there's always one. And Jehoshaphat says, bring him in. And he brings him in, and at first he mocks this prophet of God. He mocks and says, oh yeah, go up and you'll be successful. And Ahab says, oh, come on, you're never in our favor. What's the deal? And he says, you're right. God has said, if you go, you'll be destroyed. Amazingly, Jehoshaphat still joins with Ahab and they go fight this common enemy. That's one of the, to me, one of the mysteries of the scripture. I want to get in Jehoshaphat's mind and say, why did you do this? Was the alliance so strong that, that integrity said you still had to do it, even though the prophet of God for whom you called said, don't go? Why did you go? Now, Ahab, hedging his bets a bit, said he was going to dress up like a commoner so that no one would know that he was the king. But Jehoshaphat would have none of that until he went dressed as Jehoshaphat. And so they go into battle together. And all of a sudden we read that the enemy comes against Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat calls upon the Lord. And then they realize, providentially, that Jehoshaphat isn't Ahab, the king of Israel, so they let him go. And an archer randomly shoots his bow and the arrow happens to go in the crevice between, the, between pieces of armor in Ahab and it kills him. And Jehoshaphat goes back to Judah. And the prophet then comes, another prophet comes to him and says, chapter 19 and verse 2, But Jehu, the son of Hanani the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Asherahs, that is, false idols, out, to, uh, out of the land and have set your heart to seek God. So here we find Jehoshaphat when he was strong, when he was wealthy, when all the things were for him, he made this bad alliance and he almost was killed. And now he finds himself in the passage that I read in a different situation. Providentially, the nations of the world seem no longer afraid of Jehoshaphat. At one time, the fear of the Lord gripped them in such a way that they wouldn't come against. Now that seems to be taken away. God being sovereign over even our enemies. And, and there they stand. And so everywhere that Jehoshaphat looks, he sees an enemy on each corner. And the scripture says what we read, that Jehoshaphat was afraid. Reasonable response, by the way. Smart response. 
He looked around at his circumstance and his situation where he was, and he looked at the women, and he looked at the children, and he looked at the enemies around him, and he realized that he couldn't run, and that if he stood the fight, they'd kill him. And he didn't want to surrender because he was the king and he had charge over these people under God. So he had no good alternative at that point in time. And so even though he had great wealth and even though there was righteousness ruling in the land, if you will, because of justice and because of the military strength and all of that, there he was at his weakest position. And he turned and sought the Lord. Now the question is, when was he strongest? He turned and sought the Lord. And he turned and sought the Lord with with, with all the people with him. And he began to pray. And the prayer that he prayed was one that first and foremost concentrated upon God. He took great solace in the sovereignty of God. Notice how he puts it. He said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in the heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. Your hands are power and might. In your hands are power and might so that none of is able to withstand you. And so what Jehoshaphat does here is that he really seeks the Lord in his praying. Very often when we hit our knees, we're still thinking about the enemy. We're still thinking about the problem. That's all that we can, we're just consumed by it. But Jehoshaphat seems to have let all that go for a moment. And he turns his attention Upon God. I've said this a lot, I suppose, over the years. You know, I get talking to too many groups of people and forget whom, to whom I said what lately. But the way that you make a mountain out of a molehill is by getting very close to the molehill. If you get close enough to the molehill, you can't see anything else. You know what a molehill is? It's a little in the ground. But if you lay down in front of a molehill and your eyes are this far from it, That's all you can see. I mentioned before, years ago when I was interviewing for a job in Colorado, uh, my first uh, pastorate, I was picked up by a psychologist. And as we were driving from the airport into Lakewood uh, towards the west, I said, the mountains are beautiful. He says, yes, get a good peek at them now because pretty soon we'll be too close to see them. And I'm thinking... He's a shrink. What's, what's he getting at here? So I just said, hmm. <laughs> but when I got to Lakewood, I realized he was right because you're so in them, you can't see them. The, the foothills dwarf these huge mountains. And Jehoshaphat was, was doing that very thing that we must do. When we, that's the meaning of seeking the Lord. It's to bring him up close and to think about who he is so that things become in perspective. So he thinks about the Lord and he thinks about the promises that God had given them. God had said, call to me in your day of trouble. Solomon had built this temple and the dedication of the temple, Solomon said, anytime, God, that we're in trouble, we're going to come here, we're going to face you, we're going to seek you and, and you have promised to deliver us. So Jehoshaphat was going through all of that and then at the very end, he brings in, he says, mentions, there happen to be these enemies at every corner, and could God please do something about that? And then, you know, the prayer of Jehoshaphat doesn't sell books like the prayer of Jabez did. It says, make me bigger. <laughs> At least the perverted 
view of that prayer. Um, the prayer of Jehoshaphat is, Lord, we don't know what to do. Now, that wasn't entirely true. He knew some things he could do. Just none of them were very satisfying. We can stay here and get slaughtered. We can run and they'll catch us. We can surrender, then we become their slaves. So basically, the things we can do, God, are not acceptable. They're not. They're, 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 we don't know what to do, but we're going to focus our attention upon you. The prophet comes. And as all the prophets would come, they would say, don't worry, the battle's not yours, it's God's. They knew that from their history. We know that. That's the very thing that God says to us in Christ. This battle cannot be fought by you. This battle cannot be won by you. So I'm sending Jesus and he's going to win it, which he did on the cross. We couldn't win the battle over our sin. We couldn't win the battle for our own redemption. And so I sent Jesus to win that. So we know that, just like they knew it, just like they could remember the time that Moses stood before them and said, don't worry, God will show himself. I'm going to hold my hand out here, and the sea is going to part, and we're going to walk through it. Just like David said when he went to fight against Goliath, don't worry, This battle is God's. He'll lead us into victory. And he did in a miraculous kind of way. They knew that from their history. We know that from ours, that when we bring God close and personal, we see things in perspective, that the battle isn't ours. It really is his, that he will, in fact, fight for us. We must believe that word. We must seek the Lord. We must believe his word. And then the prophet says something. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle isn't yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. And you know me, I'm always thinking, God, if this is your fight, I'm staying home. Uh, and then we realize that God fights for us, but not without us. And so they had to go and face the enemy. Again, marvelous expression, verse 20, and that arose early in the morning. It means they went to bed that night, and they rested. They rested. And the truth of the word of the prophet that, he would, that God would fight for them and the truth of the word of the prophet that God was with them, and the truth of the word of the prophet that the battle wasn't theirs but God's, they could then rest. And the same way that we rest, the same way little Jenna was fast asleep, in the same way that Abraham slept while God cut covenants, we rest in him, the battle is his, he wins. But then we must live it out, right? And so they had to live it out. And how did they win this battle? Well, they went by singing, which is a good thing, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that 24-7. But what won the battle is that they declared his praises. They declared the excellencies of God over the enemy that they faced. Now, quickly. With all that we face as a church, with all that we face as individuals, I don't know where you are in your personal life, but I do know in hospital rooms there's a prayer, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you, help us. And when relationships are shattering, there's a prayer that says, God, we don't know what to do but our eyes are upon you. And then, really, our eyes be upon God. Bring him up close and personal. Who is he? How does he apply in this particular situation? And and how are we going to live this out under God? And as God calls us in the context of this great commission to be his witnesses, as God calls us in the midst of this community to speak forth the truth of Christ, to live out the ways of Christ, to, to show people Jesus with the fervent hope that they come to trust in him, that overwhelming task 
Even that word of Jesus where he says, I'm going to send, you know, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Well, Jesus was sent out as a sheep among wolves. He's sending us. It's overwhelming to us. God, our eyes are upon you. We don't know what to do. But you see, when our eyes are upon God, our eyes are upon Jesus. And we know that he's the very one who's come and lived and died. And, and, and he worked in our lives. Thus he can work in the lives of others. And thus it gives us confidence to step out, to take advantage of what God brings to us, to, to take advantage of the places where we find ourselves and with great confidence live out this truth before Jesus, before people trusting in Jesus. It's ours with our lives and with our lips to say, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, that you would grant us that grace to do just that. Obstacles in our own life might seem huge in terms of time, in terms of sacrifice, in terms of just the stuff that we've got to deal with on a daily basis, it seems, to even think about anybody else to think about testifying of Christ, to think about even intentionally walking out in such a way that people would notice that we're followers of Jesus. But I pray that you would grant us grace to pull you up close and personal, to trust in all that Christ has done, and that you would, through us, defeat whatever enemies are keeping others from coming to faith. And that, Father, that you would use us and that we would see it in this community. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. The response to the benediction is, our eyes are upon Jesus. Amen. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, our eyes are upon Jesus. Amen.